0: Well, the Roman Catholic Church just days ago issued forth and released a 220-page volume describing the decline in health and eventual death of the former Pope John Paul II. It's really a journal logging all the events that took place from January 31st of this year until his death on April 2nd, 2005. It gave detailed descriptions of his symptoms, the care he received, and how he responded to that treatment. It records how his turn for the worst took place on the morning of March 31st when he was hit by a shaking chill, followed by a sharp rise in temperature to 103 degrees Fahrenheit. It records the final words he uttered from his mouth just six hours before he died. In Polish, he said with a very weak voice and with mumbled words, "'Let me go to the house of the Father.'" Those were spoken at 3:30 in the afternoon. A little before 7 o'clock, he went into a coma. The official time of his death was registered at at 9:37 p.m. And I think the Vatican published this report because of the curiosity of many Roman Catholic, many of those in the Roman Catholic Church, who feel the need to know of the, the final events surrounding their most beloved Pope. Well, this morning we're going to look into the details surrounding the death of one who's far more important than Pope John Paul II. We're going to look at the details surrounding the final three hours in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. I trust you're opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 45 through 54. And over the past few weeks, we've heard about Jesus standing trial before the Jewish leaders and before the Romans, before Pontius Pilate. We have heard about how He was beaten and how He was crucified. Crucified merely means hung on a tree someplace. We've heard how He was mocked by His crowds. And this morning, we have an opportunity to think about His death, the final moments of His life. I want to read the text for you and then give you my outline. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and all those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. My outline this morning consists really of just four words that will help, I hope, explain to us exactly what took place when Jesus died on the cross. My first word this morning is judgment. Judgment's from verse 45, which says, from the sixth hour, that is from noon. Their day started at six in the morning when the sun went up. That was the first hour. The sixth hour puts it around noon. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, kids, is what time? Three o'clock in the afternoon. For three hours there he was. A darkness fell upon the land. Now, we have no idea how this darkness came to be. We know that it wasn't caused by an eclipse, the Passover was always celebrated with a full moon. Earth is here. The moon is over here and the sun is over here so that the reflection of that could be a full moon. It's impossible for the moon to be in front of the sun to cause an eclipse. We know that wasn't the case. It may have been a sudden cloud cover. It may have been a, a heat-stirred dust wind. It may have been a, a rain cover that was coming in. But you know what? I don't think it was any of these things. I believe that it was something Supernatural. I believe that God the Father turned off the sun for a few hours, much like we turn off our light switches. Perhaps God the Father thought this moment to be too holy for others to see with full clarity, and so He made it dark so that the reality of seeing the Son of God wilt away in the final three hours of His life and actually then pass away might not be seen in full display of the sunlight I believe the darkness was very great upon the land. In fact, I believe that if you would have looked up, you may have seen the stars. Probably at that time when the darkness came, the, the people around the cross probably scurried about and got some torches to light the way. So if you have in your mind the, this idea of Christ dying in full full brightness, of sunlight, think again. If you would have taken a picture of Jesus at that time, you would have needed to have a flashbulb. Because it would have been too dark. Had you wanted to peer into the face of Jesus, you needed to take a torch and and put it up closely to Him. Oh, you may have seen His outline against the the darkened sky. But in order to see His face, you would have had to bring up some torches up there. It is interesting. When Jesus came into the world, there was a shining star above His stable at night. Lighting and illuminating there where He was. Light and hope to the nations. And yet, when He died... There was condescending darkness surrounding His death. Now, the question really comes this, is why? Why was there darkness? And I believe, as my outline dictates, that it was a sign, a clear sign of God's judgment. Throughout the Bible, darkness is always associated with judgment. One of the plagues that came upon Egypt in the days of Moses was darkness. It's a plague of judgment. In the book of Revelation... There's a portion of the judgment, the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars. Perhaps the most convincing, however, is the darkness spoken of in the book of Amos. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verse 9. In that passage, Amos tells of the day in which the Lord would make the sun go down at noon. That's exactly what happened. The sun went down at noon. Amos speaks about, in the context of Amos chapter 8, the day of judgment. I believe this darkness is representing. The next question comes this, is, okay, it's judgment, but judgment upon whom? Well, I think judgment upon two groups of people. First of all, the Jews, who committed the most evil sin that was ever done. I mean, think about what the nation of Israel did. They disowned the holy and righteous one in the presence of Pilate. They asked for a murderer in his place. They put to death the Prince of Life. They crucified the Lord of Glory. Here was perfect love. Here was perfect light. And they did the worst thing imaginable to Him. They put Him to death. And not only that, they put Him to the worst death imaginable. The greatest of purity they brought down to the greatest of indignity and injustice. See, it's one thing to sin against a fellow human being whose sin may have stirred you to sin against them. But it's another thing entirely to sin against a holy God who has only sent grace and kindness to you in your life. I think about David when he sinned awful sins, murder and adultery. He confessed it in Psalm 51. You remember? He prayed to the Lord and he said, Against you, O Lord, against you only have I sinned. <clears throat> That's not. That He didn't sin against people. He just said, in comparison with my sin against you, God, and my sin against other people, that's how it seems and that's how it appears. This, this sin of adultery looks so small compared to how I've sinned against you. And you take a, that thought, and you think about these Jews who sinned against God Himself directly by putting Jesus, the holy and pure and righteous One, to death. I mean, the sin is far greater than that of King David, who sinned against fellow sinners. And so the dark judgment came upon the entire land of Israel. But there's another judgment taking place the judgment upon Jesus Christ himself. Okay? I want you to let's put this scene on hold, okay? I want you to think about yourself standing before God on the judgment day. And think about what it would be like to stand before God on the judgment day apart from Jesus Christ. You're beholding the throne of God with the Holy One of Israel seated upon it. It's lifted high and exalted. It is so bright that the dazzling white is there that you can hardly look upon it. You know, it's like sun on a snow cloud day with snow all around, brightening into your eyes. You need sunglasses or to shield your eyes just from the, the flaming brightness of the Holy One. And not only do you see his holiness, but you hear his holiness because the, the seraphim around his throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you're standing there between this absolute pure holiness and and, and purity. And God says, bring out the videotape. And they got a videotape, which isn't just six hours long. It's 25 hours long. In fact, for some of us, it might be 50 hours long. Puts the tape in. In fact, for some of us, it could go on for days and months. Puts the tape in. And all your sins are played there before the Lord. Before pure holiness... These sins are played before you. Now, I want you to think about the realities of what your open sin is like before the Lord. Exposed to Him before whom He hates every sin with an utter hatred. I mean, God is so holy that He calls the littlest lie that you tell as an abomination before the Lord. And here, think about all your sins, all compiled, all before the Lord. The reason why it only takes 50 hours is because it went fast forward through them. That's the punishment that we deserve would be amazing. He would take us... He would blow us to smithereens in a second. We deserve everlasting punishment before the Lord. And that is the judgment that awaits everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of the Gospel. If you trust in Christ, all those sins that came before the Father, Jesus Christ, taps the Father on the shoulder and says, Father, I paid for those sins upon the cross of Christ at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Let him free. That's what the darkness represents. The darkness represents all of the sin of all of us who would believe all upon Him, all in that moment of time. The only way that God the Father could ever judge Jesus Christ, the Son, like that, is to abandon Him. Which is exactly what He did in our next verse, verse 46. Not only judgment, but we see abandonment. About the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This phrase is just loaded with significance. The phrase has caused theologians to think and ponder hard for centuries to seek to fully grasp what was going on at this moment of time. God the Father forsaking God the Son. I mean, think about it. For 33 years of the life of Christ, Jesus had known intimacy with the Father. He came forth from the Father into the world. While in the world, Jesus said, I'm not alone because the Father is with Me. Jesus did the work that the Father had given Him to do. This intimacy even came down so close that even the words that Jesus spoke came from the Father. John 14, verse 10, "...the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works." The Father abiding in Jesus does the works, directs the things that He speaks... Such was the communion with God. And never was there a time in the entire life of Jesus that He was apart from the presence of God the Father. Until this moment of the cross. Suddenly, the Father was gone. And Jesus no longer felt or experienced the presence of His heavenly Father. He was truly abandoned and alone for the first time in His entire life. Now, Jesus knew what it was to be abandoned by other people. I mean, surely during his life, there were many people who were unfaithful to him. You know, when he was a little boy. Friends who promised something to him, like left him, right? They made fun of him, certainly. Of the ten lepers that he healed, all of them abandoned him except for one who came back and gave thanks in Luke 17. And how many thousands did he heal that really left Jesus high and dry? When he fed 5,000 people that day, many of them stirred against his teaching. In fact, many who heard Jesus gladly one day would leave Him the next day due to His doctrine. Due to the hard words that He says. Many who cried, Hosanna! Only a few days later, turned on Him and cried, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And then there was Judas and the twelve. They all abandoned Him. So, Jesus knew what human abandonment was like. But you know what? Think about this. Jesus never vocalized His own agony with those who left Him. I mean, when Judas betrayed Him, remember His words? His words were only those of compassion. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Words to convict Him in His soul. And when Peter denied Him three times, it was only a look that Jesus gave to Peter. Didn't condemn him. Didn't speak out. But this moment on the cross was far different. Because you know what? I believe this was far more difficult. It caused him to scream in agony. Look at verse 46. It says he cried out with a loud voice. It's redundant. It says he cried out! With a loud voice. And so he's upon the cross. His his energy is being sapped. And he says, clear as a bell, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? That's what it's like. Never did he utter word of human abandonment. But his pain and his agony to the Lord was a loud voice, I'm sure, heard for hundreds of yards all the way around. Do you know what? This was necessary for our salvation. It was necessary for God to abandon Christ in order to judge Him for our sin. And never underestimate the agony it took. Never underestimate the pain that it caused Jesus. I think this was worse than the physical pain of the cross. I think this was worse than the shame of the cross. I think the experiencing of being apart from the presence of God was so utterly devastating to Jesus. On the flip side, then think about what it's going to be like to be with Jesus when we see Him as He is and are like Him. That'll give you a sense of how glorious that time will be. But there had to be this divine abandonment for Jesus to be judged in our stead. And so I want you to hear, when you hear read in the future, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to heaven Calling down to Jesus, so I can save my people, Jesus. Because that's the answer. Apart from the Father forsaking the Son, salvation would be impossible. I want you to think further how, how difficult this was for Jesus to bear. I mean, first of all, it was an entirely new experience for him. He never, ever experienced alienation from God before until this moment. Second, his father abandoned Jesus when Jesus needed him most. I mean, think about all the martyrs throughout all of history. This has not been and nor will it ever be the case. In the hour of greatest need, God has always been faithful to sustain His people. God has promised... I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Listen to some of the promises that He gave the saints down through the ages to Joshua. In Joshua 1, verse 5, He's going to lead the people in the promised land. He says, No one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, so I will also be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. When David faced his troubles... He rested confidently in the Lord's presence and help. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27, verse 1. Just right with with David. It's going to be God giving defense around David. His presence, not leaving or forsaking. Israel was told, Isaiah 51, verse 10, Do not fear because I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely, I will help you. Surely, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We are promised. All of us who trust in Christ, there's no condemnation in Christ. In fact, there's no separation from Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The story of footprints is true. This will probably be the last time I quote the story, but you know it. It's a cute story. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Scenes from his life flashed across the sky and he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to him and the other belonging to the Lord. When the last scene of his life had flashed before him, he recalled that at the lowest and saddest times of his life, there's only one set of footprints. Tismayed, he said, Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. I don't understand why. When I need you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, My precious child, I love you, and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you saw only one set of footprints, that was when I carried you. But you know what? That was not the case of Jesus. At this moment in time, hour of greatest need, God abandoned him. God left him to his own strength. Jesus was on the cross, He bore our sins in His body there, without the help of the Father, without the help of the Spirit, all by Himself. I'd help you to see how powerful the Lord Jesus Christ is. I think a third thing that added to his agony was that the fact that this fact of God forsaking him didn't blindsight him. He was anticipating this going to take place, These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, comes from Psalm 22, which is known as the Crucifixion Psalm. Listen to some of the words from Psalm 22. They were being fulfilled right before the eyes of Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. That's exactly what was quoted in verse 43. Exactly quoted to Jesus from Psalm 22. They were saying these things in mockery. Just as had been prophesied. Psalm 22, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up, is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Poured out like water. Remember the spear went into his side? Somehow water came out of His side, though He was dehydrated. Perhaps water from the serum of the blood is separated. I don't know. It was common for criminals to be upon the cross and when finally the cross is put in place, jo- that joints come out of place. That may well have happened to Christ. Dislocated shoulder hurts a little bit. Steve Belanger, is that right? Sure does. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, right? I told you last week of how dying on the cross is dying of exhaustion. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, right? It would have been hot. In Israel, it is a hot place. When I was in Israel, every day we went out, we had big two-liter bottles of water that we went to drink for ourselves. And we're in air-conditioned buses. And we're just out looking at little places just a little bit. And every day we drank two liters of water easily. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross in the hot sun. Certainly He was thirsty and certainly His tongue cleaved to His jaws. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us He was thirsty while upon the cross. Psalm 22, 16, 17. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They look and they stare at me. Now, this is amazing. They pierced my hands, they pierced my feet. Do you know these words of Psalm 22 were written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented? The Persians invented it. When I told you last week it was, it was rude and crudimentary. The Persians just nailed somebody and impaled them to a tree, oftentimes killing him right then and there, <clears throat> sometimes wounding him greatly, leaving him up to die. But this, hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, he said, they pierced my hands, they pierced my feet. He says, evildoers encompass me. And were they not evildoers all around Him? The chief priests were yelling at Him. The, the Roman soldiers were mocking Him as well. He says, I can count all my bones. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and it was time to get the bodies down for the celebration of the Passover? The thieves and the criminals on either side of Christ so their legs broken, maybe shattered, a couple pieces, they couldn't count those. But Christ, His legs weren't broken because He died first. So they look and they stare at Me. How many people did Christ have upon the cross? Just look at Him and stare at Him. Psalm 22, verse 18, "...they divide My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots." This is done by the soldiers the feet of Jesus. Now think about it. All these things are transpiring before the face of Jesus, before the eyes of Jesus. Do you? What passage of Scripture do you think He was meditating upon? You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness tempted by the devil, remember when, when Satan came up and tempted him three times? Do you know what he quoted three times? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. You know why he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy? I believe he did because he was out in the wilderness like the people of Israel, and I think his mind was so saturated with identifying with the experience of God's people so long ago that Deuteronomy was on his heart and his mind. And so when he's crucified, what's going to be on his heart and his mind? It's going to be Psalm 22, and he knows the first verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I think the anticipation to his sufferings surely added to his sufferings. Abandonment. Let's look at the third word this morning. Fulfillment. Verses 47 through 50. You know, the abuse that Jesus sustained upon the cross never finished until the moment he died. One thief upon the cross got to the point where he stopped hurling abuse at Jesus and asked Him for mercy. But the other one continued on being a reviler until Jesus died. The crowds never let up. They continued to hurl their abuse upon Jesus right to the end. And I believe this is the point of verses 47 through 48. Some of them are standing there. They heard Jesus say, "...this man is calling for Elijah." And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him a drink. The rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. The most obvious sense of these words, that those who were standing by heard Jesus cry out, Eli! Eli! And he mistook that for Elijah. L means God. E at the end means my. Eli means my God would have sounded like elijah now Elijah was a worker of miracles who never died. He was taken up by a whirlwind to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 1. And it is probable that there was a Jewish tradition floating around during the time of Christ that believed that Elijah would come and rescue the righteous in their distress without letting them die. And putting all these things together, they heard Jesus say these things, they surmised that Jesus was calling for Elijah. One man sought to sustain his life just a little bit longer, right? By putting a drink of sour wine to his lips, right? Help him just a little bit longer. But the rest were waiting to see if Elijah were come. Now, I ask you, how was verse 49 said? Did they see, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him? Or did they say, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him? I believe it was a mockery from the mouth. These who are so unbelieving at all up to this point, they didn't start becoming believing at this point. I think it was a full-fledged mockery into their, to the ears of Jesus. They were skeptical of Jesus the whole way. And I think that they were going to mock Christ when Elijah didn't come. Why didn't Elijah come, Jesus? Huh? Where is he? You're calling for Elijah, where is he? Right up until the moment of his death, he continued to face abuse after abuse after abuse. Never did the crowds get to the point of saying, "Hey, listen guys, you know what? Let's back off a little bit. Let's let him die in peace." Never. Jesus continued to be the object of abuse until His very end. And in this sense, I believe that there was fulfillment in His sufferings. That's what we read in verse 50, when Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up His spirit. Matthew doesn't tell us here what Jesus said. We might even think maybe Jesus let out one final scream of pain. But John tells us what he said. Do you remember what he said? What does he say? last words upon the cross. What? It is It is finished. That's what he said. And I love to hear those words coming from the mouth of my children. Hey, guys. Did you guys clean your room? It is finished. <laughs> yes. Hey, did you guys did you empty the dishwasher? It is finished, Dad. <laughs> yes, yes. Right, you fold your laundry? It is finished. Those are great words for a parent to hear. They're not heard as often as they should be heard. But when Jesus said these words, (laughs) they ought to fill our minds with joy. Did Jesus fulfill His mission? It is finished. Did Jesus remain faithful until the very end? It is finished. Did Jesus satisfy the Father's wrath for our sin? It is finished. Never would Jesus need to be sacrificed again. Never would Jesus have to die again. In fact, it even gets better than that. Never would there ever need to be any sacrifice ever again. The work of redemption was finished. There's no need to add to it anymore. It's finished. The one sacrifice upon the cross satisfied the wrath of God for all time for all who would believe upon Christ. All done. All finished. It's the point that many of the New Testament writers speak of. Paul wrote how our certificate of debt, which consisted of decrees against us, was nailed to the cross. It was finished. It was done there upon the cross 2,000 years ago. The sin you committed was punished then. God knew full well the sin you would commit and punished it in anticipation of that sin The writer of the Hebrews picks up the same things. Jesus doesn't need to offer up sacrifices daily like high priests of the Old Testament. Rather, He died once for all when He offered up Himself. Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Jesus fully accomplished all the work that the Father had given Him to do. There's nothing more for Jesus to do except sit down and wait for the consummation of all things. It reminds me a bit of vacation. For me... The greatest moment of vacation is when the wheels of our car hit the road on our way out of town. The reason is... How many times have I told you that, Yvonne? <laughs> this is the best part of vacation. Everything's ahead of us. Lots is behind us. And what's behind us? Well, figuring out who's going to take care of our house when we're gone. Figuring out who's going to mow the lawn. Who's going to take care of the plants, Right packing for all the kids you know, making plans you know, planning all that stuff when all of that is done we sit in our car we drive out and it's almost done we go to California to visit uh, my in-laws Yvonne's parents I think especially even again when, once all the, the baggage is stowed and we've checked in and we sit on the plane it's like well, what else do I have to do but sit back and enjoy the friendly skies there's nothing else to do with kids, there's, there's a lot to do on the plane. But you get, you get the sense of what I'm talking about, right? The beginning of a, of a journey, you've worked really hard, you sit back. Maybe after a hard day of work, when you sit down and say it's all accomplished, but it doesn't quite compare because you got to get up to work the next day. right? And after we go on vacation, we're coming back, we got to work. But Jesus, when He sat down, His work was finished for all time. That's what Hebrews 1 verse 3 says. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It was all finished. The work of our redemption was accomplished. Fourth and final word helps bring out what happened on the cross. We've seen judgment. We've seen abandonment. We've seen fulfillment. And now we see announcement. Verses 51 through 54. Once Jesus died, God the Father made sure that all knew about His death. I think that's the point of these verses. In verse 51, we see some catastrophic events taking place in the land of Israel. And I believe they all happened to get the attention of people that something very important was just taking place. Right? Remember when Jesus was baptized? The voice came down from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Divine affirmation, announcement of the fact that Christ is the one in whom God is pleased. These cosmic disturbances were in effect making a similar statement that a tragic thing had just happened. The Messiah was rejected and crucified by His people. John 1.11, He came into His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. The earth shook. The veil was torn. As people raised from the dead, it would have been, Hey, listen up, people of Israel, take note of these things. Something tragic has taken place. But it's something marvelous as well and you need to look into these things. Well, let's look at the first catastrophic event. It says, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this for the Jews would have been devastating. I'm trying hard even to think about giving a modern day parallel to this. Perhaps a modern day parallel would be to know that the Taliban has cracked into... All of the computers in the Pentagon and stolen all of our national secrets of intelligence. Just like, ugh, you know, utter fear and utter shock for this veil kept the world away from the most holy place on the planet. I mean, nobody was ever permitted to go past this veil except the high priest, and he could only go past the veil one time each year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He'd make a sacrifice for his own sins and then on behalf of the people he'd make a sacrifice for their sins and then he'd leave the Holy of Holies only to wait another year for another different high priest, holy man, to come in and offer the same sacrifice for himself and for the people. Once a year. The Jews were careful about these things. They knew it was a matter of life and death. When Nadab and Abihu presented strange offering to the Lord, presenting offerings to the Lord in the way not commanded, they were consumed by fire from heaven. And Moses had a little talk with Aaron after this. He said, The Lord said, By those who come near me, I'll be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. And they knew full well that not to honor the Lord and not to come respecting His holiness was a death sentence to them. And the Jews kept this place holy. They honored the Lord in this thing greatly. In fact, so holy was this place it was called the Holy of Holies. Right? The entire temple is holy and this is the place that was holiest of all of the temple. The Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple. But in this particular place, most Jews would never see that place. And with the temple curtain ripped, the Holy of Holies was open for all to see... That wouldn't surprise me if the priests quickly sought to secure another veil. Right? They got another veil. Right? They took this veil here like this and they walked backwards Right? so it's not to look in. And they put this veil up and they said, oh, okay. Now it's, now it's okay. Right? Lest the people of Israel look into the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Holies and be consumed by the fiery anger of God. Little did they realize that it was God who ripped down this veil. It was no accident. It was no act of men. With an act of God. I mean, notice how the veil was tor- torn. It says it was torn from top to bottom. Were mere mortal men to tear this veil, they would have torn it from bottom to top. One man here on the side of the veil, another man here on the side of the veil, they rip it up and it from bottom to top. But this ripped from top to bottom, clearly showing that God had torn it down. What God had torn down, let no man put up. The Jews today fail because they put that back up. They didn't realize everything that God was announcing to the world. He was announcing you no longer need the Holy of Holies to access God. You no longer need the High Priest to access God on your behalf on the day of Yom Kippur because the ultimate day of atonement has come in the death of Christ. The Son of God has been sacrificed, the perfect Passover Lamb, crucified for your sins, the yearly sacrifices all pointed to that one sacrifice that would come once and take away all sins for all time. Those who believe. The writer of the Hebrews points this out quite well. It says, "...a law since it is only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of those things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near." It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, but Jesus, by one offering, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's what the ripping of the veil means. The ripping of the veil means that that there's no more high priest mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.5 It's the, by the blood of Jesus that we have confidence to enter now into the holy place. We don't need to trust in high priests anymore. And that's what God was announcing with the ripping of the veil in two. But it wasn't only the veil that God used to make His announcement to the world of what happened that day. He also sent an earthquake. It says in verse 51, the last half of that, that the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, we can only assume this earthquake was a large one. Matthew says explicitly that the rocks were split. We, this may be the rocks of Jerusalem, maybe the rocks of the Temple Mount, maybe the bedrock. For any of those to have been split, it would have meant a big earthquake took place. Now, it is difficult to know exactly what the Lord was seeking to communicate with this earthquake, but you know what? I believe that He was merely seeking to get attention to the people in Jerusalem of, what, of the significance of the event that just occurred. Yvonne and I were married on June 27, 1992. It's a glorious day on both of our calendars. At 4.57 in the morning, before we got out of bed for the first time together, the Lord sent an earthquake upon us, <coughs> rattling our hotel bed. I've always felt that it's an announcement from the Lord that something significant has just occurred. (laughs) I've always felt it's a divine confirmation of our marriage. I believe that's what took place in Jerusalem at this time. I mean, everyone in Jerusalem would have felt this earthquake the Lord sent upon the earth. Even those, perhaps, who were home sleeping. They worked a night shift, okay? They're home sleeping, taking a nap. With such a a strong earthquake like this, I believe it would have waken them up. I remember speaking with a friend of mine who was living in Los Angeles during the time of the Northridge earthquake in 1994. He said that he was in bed sleeping when the earthquake hit at 4.30 in the morning. He said he woke up and it felt like somebody was shaking him back and forth like this is what he said. Nobody slept through the 1994 Northridge earthquake and nobody slept through the 30, 30 A.D. Jerusalem earthquake either all would have been alerted to the big event that just took place. In fact, I think this is a little bit like disciplining our children. The Bible tells us to use the rod with children because it will drive the foolishness out of them. It will give them wisdom. All right? We love them, that's why we do that. As yes, we take the rod, we don't hurt them with the rod. We spank them on their bottoms. So they feel the pain. It's in a sense to shake them. To wake them up. Because obviously your words aren't being obeyed. And if your words just through your ears aren't being obeyed, maybe the neurons through their body hitting their brain might say, Oh, God, Dad is serious about this. And so likewise, when God shook Jerusalem, He said, You know what? I'm serious about what took place. You saw Jesus walk on the planet. You heard Him. You saw Him. I want you to feel it now. I'm serious about this. This is an announcement. This is what's taking place. I believe I'm right on my interpretation because this was the response of the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard. Look at verse 54. They had witnessed, the centurion and his guard had witnessed many crucifixions in their lifetime. But you know what? They said this was different than all of them. Never before had they crucified one who prayed for their forgiveness as they pound the nails into his hands. I mean, when they're pounding the nails into Jesus and Jesus is over there, oh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The centurion said, that is weird. Never experienced that before in a crucifixion. And, and by the way, these, these men crucified hundreds, thousands of people during the time of Christ. They'd seen many of them. They'd been numbed to it. But that was a shocker, I'm sure. Never before had supernatural darkness come across the land during the crucifixion. This guy's upon the cross. It's like, poof, who turned out the lights? Something's happening here. Never before an earthquake shook the ground the moment a victim died. They put all those things together. They witnessed it. They concluded that God Himself was involved in His crucifixion. It was so different than any others. And that's what we read in verse 54. Finally, we come. Now, the centurion and those who were with Him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. They got it right. He said, this was the innocent man. This was the Son of God. He never should have been crucified. God's confirmation upon him. Now, the Jews should have come to the same conclusion as well. I mean, just think about it. Whenever a catastrophic event happens like this, people always talk about it. I mean, you can talk to those people who lived through the 1994 Northridge earthquake and you can ask them, well, where were you? What were you doing during the earthquake? And they all know right where they were and they will gladly tell you where they were. You go down right now to New Orleans and say, boy, where were you when Katrina hit? They'll tell you right where they were, what they were doing. Boy, did you have to get rescued? How did you get out? You know, what's it like? To... They will gladly say because whenever a disaster takes place, it's on the lips and on the mouth of people. You go through a big storm and you'll gladly talk about what you experienced. And these events would have been the talk of Jerusalem. I, mean, I can imagine just several women talking. One says to another, well, what were you doing when the earthquake hit? I said, well, I was out back making dinner for our family and things started shaking and, and my, my pot started rattling. In fact, some of them fell off the shelf and broke. Where were you? He said, I was walking along the way and all of a sudden my legs felt like rubber. And I, I, I grabbed the side of the, the house there and stood and, and the ground kept shaking. I said, ah, it's an earthquake. I know what's happening. And he asked another. I said, where were you? He says, well, I was with my friend Mary Magdalene. She was with her friends and you know, they were seeing one of their friends be crucified, a man named Jesus, and we were watching him from a distance and we could see him there, but boy, as soon as he dropped his head, it's like that was the, the ball coming down which caused this earthquake to come and I think that's much more than a a mere coincidence. I think there's a correlation. He was a righteous man. All my friends were telling me how this man was the Messiah and I, I'm not sure I believe that, but this is, boy, I, I'm, maybe. And I think as many of them talked in Jerusalem among themselves, it would have spread the timing of these events, the darkness, Jesus' head coming down, the earthquake coming, and they would have had to put those two things together together. The earthquake took place the moment that Jesus died. I believe it was God's method of getting everyone's attention, trying to shake them up a little bit, saying the Messiah has been crucified. Well, there's one more event that took place that was perhaps even more miraculous than the the darkness or the tearing of the veil or the earthquake. It was the opening of many tombs. Let's look here in 52 and 53. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I believe at this point that God used the mouths of many who had died earlier to further announce the significance of what had just taken place. These verses indicate that many God-fearing people who had just died were raised from the dead. They entered the holy city to be seen, as it says there, by many People. Now you don't hear much about this. I mean, I don't believe that I've ever heard a sermon mentioning this. In fact, I listened to a few sermons this week that focused on "Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani," and you know, none of them talked about this event. Maybe a reason for this is because no other gospel writes about this event. None of the epistles refer to this either. And you'd think that. This is, this is an amazing event, isn't it? I mean, these people raising from the dead and infiltrating Jerusalem. You'd think that somebody would write about that, but not much did. And so, with the lack of data, really, it's difficult to know exactly what took place. It would have been great if Paul would have said, Yeah, and I met you know this guy named Cornelius who had raised, he died just a few days earlier. He came and he talked to me. You know, and just even one testimony about that, but we don't have any, sadly. It's difficult to know what took place, right? How many of these people were raised? Which ones were raised? How long were they in the tomb? Was this like those who had only been died for a month? Were this died for a year? What, what What kind of time frame are we talking about here? What happened afterwards? Did they die again? Were they like Lazarus to be raised only to die again? Or, as some commentators I read this week, believe that when they were raised, they were raised with spiritual bodies never to die again. Translated then into heaven. That's what some commentators say. I don't know. I don't know what this was like. Maybe they're like Lazarus. Maybe they died again. But maybe that made an impact, like Lazarus. You know, he went around and could tell everybody. Maybe these appearances were brief, and maybe people say, oh, I'm not sure about that, you know, and they raised them up. We don't know, but among all these questions, we do know these people raised from the dead. And we do know, verse 53 says, they appeared to many and I believe that they were making an announcement of the wonderful things that God had just done. Something unique had just happened. I don't know how clear the words out of their mouth was. I don't know how much they understood of Christ and His, His sacrifice upon the cross. But at least they would have said, Guys, you remember me at the funeral? You were around singing. What were they singing at funeral? It is well, it is well. They sing. What else? What's another funeral song that's sung? In the garden. Remember, guys, I was there and you guys were singing these hymns. How great thou art, right? That's often sung. You were there. That's me. Here I am. And maybe even if the gospel message wasn't so clear, maybe if they didn't even speak about the gospel message, hey, I'm raised from the dead, they would say, oh, well. Yeah. See, when Jesus died, the veil was ripped. There was this earthquake. There was this darkness. And boy, my friends are raised from the dead. They start putting all these things together. They should have put it together to find out that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And perhaps all these people raised from the dead, giving testimony to different people, paved the way for the fruit of 3,000 people <coughs> repenting on the day of Pentecost. You know, maybe it was one that God was, God was working on and, and ooing and, and drawing. And uh, just this became another event that helped then culminate when they said, What shall we do? Oh, believe on Christ. Like, oh, he's the Messiah. Yes, and they repented of their sin. They believed 3,000 that day. I don't think that Peter's sermon had that much success merely like that. I think perhaps there was some preparation. Maybe these people risen from the dead helped them. But at any rate, it helps bring attention to the death of Christ. Right? Brings attention to the death of Christ, which was my outline, right? It's announcement. We see at the death of Christ, we see judgment, abandonment, fulfillment, and announcement. I want to close this morning by a, a Puritan prayer. I figure that so we look at the, the cross of Christ this Puritan. who wrote this a long time ago just far better than I can in encapsulating our heart and our desire for Christ. So let's bow our heads. Listen to this prayer I read. Pray it as yourself. And then we'll close our service. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I may, might attain to heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, athirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. He endured all pain that I might have unfading health. He bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed His head that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. Closed His eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired that I might ever live. God, may we see the implications of the death of Christ. Amen. Well, we have several.